I want to start with a story this morning from the chairman and CEO of Interstate Batteries. His name is Norm Miller, and I just want you to hear this story real quickly. I don't usually read to you. Can I read to you this morning? Sure. Just for a minute, just for a couple of minutes. I want, to, I want to read you this story. Norm Miller said, my goals were simple. I wanted plenty of money and a great family. Nothing too crazy. I wasn't trying to be the next Bill Gates. I just wanted to be comfortable. By the time I was 35, I'd reached those goals. I was making more money than I ever thought I would, and I had a beautiful wife and great kids that loved me, but I wasn't happy. Norm traveled the country selling and setting up distributorships for Interstate Batteries, the company he would one day run. Every other week, he hit the road and convinced shop owners to sell his batteries. The days were long, and the work was heavy. Drinking became a way to relax after a long day's work. Then it became a way to sleep at night. It was a way to connect with coworkers, to have fun on the weekends. There was always a, a reason, and drinking seeped into every aspect of my life. For a long time, I really did have fun, but then it got habitual. I couldn't stop. I started drinking as a way to deal with the pressure of business, as a way to deal with the long hours. After work, before bed, out with friends, my whole routine revolved around alcohol. The more I drank, the more I began relying on it, needing it to function. Two DUIs marked his record, but tonight would be different. Only one drink, maybe two. But then it was three, four, five, he lost count. The booze glazed his eyes, calmed his mind, and ruined his resolve. The hours ticked by unnoticed until the taps closed and the bar emptied into the street. His keys clanked in his shaking hands. His steps wobbled toward the car. One miss then two, then three, the key finally slid into the hole. He cranked the engine and began the blurred drive home. The lights blurred his vision. The painted lines swayed across the road, in and out, faster and then slower, his mind clouded with the alcohol coursing in his veins. Flashing lights screamed behind him and pulled him to the shoulder. When I woke the next morning, I remember the nighttime binge and the close call with yet a third DUI. The reality of my problem hit me. I suddenly realized I was out of control and my life was in great peril. It wasn't a prayer. It wasn't a thought. It was like I hit my thumb with a hammer. In panic and desperation, I just blurted out a half scream. God help me. I can't handle it. If you'd asked me a day before if I even believed in God, I would have told you, I don't know. I hadn't even thought about it, but something began to change. Norm, you need to read the Bible, a friend challenged him days later. Why would I ever read the Bible, Norm questioned. He had doubts. As far as I was concerned, the Bible is an old book written by a bunch of old guys that hadn't gotten anything to do with me. But this friend continued to talk. He gave Norm some books to read and challenged him to search out the facts for himself. And Norm began to read about the Bible, and he studied all the arguments, the ancient histories, the archaeology. He examined the prophecies and their fulfillment and the historical manuscript evidence for the Bible. I wasn't thinking about eternal life. I wasn't thinking about anything super spiritual. I was thinking about life here and now. My life was in shambles. I was unfulfilled and empty. I thought that if I reached my goals, I would be happy, but just the reverse happened. I had all the money and success I ever wanted, but I was miserable 
and I was anxious. I wanted to know the truth. And so I started reading the Bible to see if a person with half a brain, with an intellect, could actually embrace its truth. His wife went to church often, and she always was asking him to come with her. He rarely agreed, but this Sunday, he said, okay. The preacher talked about God loving him. God loved me, he said. How could he love me? The things I'd done, the way I'd lived my life, I lived totally for myself. I was selfish and broken. I just assumed that God didn't love me because of the way I lived. Then he said this. He said, I never had a problem with the Bible telling me I was a sinner. I knew I was a sinner. I just didn't know what to do about it, much less that God wanted to do something with me. So hearing that God loved me, regardless of all the mess in my life, really hit me hard. Norm was invited to another Bible study across town at another friend's house. And the man began leading it, knowing that Norm was still searching and still weighing his spiritual options. And he asked questions and he talked until midnight. Finally, one night, Norm said, I'm ready. I finally made my decision. I told God that I would make him first in my life. And so I had to figure out what he wanted me to do. I got a Bible. I started going to church. I decided if the Bible was from God, then I would try to understand it. His life had always been about money. How much money could he make? How fast could he make it? Success was measured in dollars. Selling batteries was the only thing he cared about. But now he was changing. I realized that God did not measure success in dollars, but by love. He wanted me to love my neighbor. My barometer for success began to change. I started to measure how much I was experiencing God's love and how faithful I was in showing that love to others. God brought a purpose to my life, Norm said. He taught me what was really important, that life was more than money. Love is what matters, helping people to discover the truth, the truth in the Bible. These were the things that I became passionate about. I took over Interstate Batteries as chairman in 1978, and I had to figure out how to integrate this passion with running a company. I never give preference to Christians in business. Everyone is treated equally. I respect everyone's beliefs and their personal decisions, but I'm not shy about my faith. I strive to be both sensitive and bold in sharing the love and the message of Jesus in my life and in my business. I want to be known not just as the guy who sold batteries, but as the guy who shared God's love. It's a good story. It's a great story. Now, I want to contrast that story to Acts chapter 7. And don't turn there yet. Just look at the screen right now. Acts chapter 7 to a group of men called the Sanhedrin. This is 180 degree contrast to the story you just read. The Sanhedrin, Stephen's our main character today, and Stephen says, you stiff-necked people. That's probably never a good way to start off a friendly conversation, is it? He didn't have Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. And that's the next verse I want you to really key in on. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but you have not obeyed it. Now, can you imagine these two different stories? Here's a group of people who have resisted 
the work of God in their life compared to Norman Miller who has received and embraced the Spirit of God at work in his life. Now, what's the point? The point is every one of us in this room, our stories, your story, my story, every story in this room, we fall somewhere between Norman Miller and the Sanhedrin. Every one of us in this room, we fall, our stories, our spiritual journeys are either journeys of resisting journeys of rejecting, or they are journeys of embracing and receiving the Spirit of God in our life. We're in a brand new series called Change, Don't Like It, But Need It. I like that title, I think because I came up with it, but I like it, and I, I think it's funny. Because on the one hand, you know, we do change. We've heard the old slogan, people never change. Well, that's really not true. You've changed, and I've changed. I'm not the same person I was 25 years ago. I don't do the same things. I don't hang with the same people. I don't go to the same place. You, we all change. Now, why do we change? Well, we change because we feel a need. Or we change because we see an opportunity. Or we change because someone may have warned us or someone has instructed us. We change because maybe a banker tells us, you're not going to get the loan if you continue to do this. Or we change because maybe a doctor says, if you continue to do this, your life's going to be shortened by a whole bunch of years. We change when maybe a coach tells us, you can hit the, the softball harder if you will do this. Or we change if a pastor warns us about this. I think we live a life of change all the time. So what keeps us from changing quicker? And what keeps us from changing more? And what keeps us from changing faster? Well, sometimes we're in denial. Sometimes it's a blind spot. Perhaps we're apathetic or perhaps we're stubborn. Perhaps we're rebellious. Perhaps we're resistant. Perhaps we don't have hope. Perhaps we have apathy. And so sometimes what keeps us from change is just we, we feel hopeless. We've tried to change so many times in our lives and we can't seem to do it on our own. But you and I live a life where we have the opportunities to make changes. Well, our key person today is a guy named Stephen. And it's in Acts chapter 7, and we're going to turn to Acts chapter 6 in just a, just a second and look at that. Acts chapter 7 is this whole story. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 6, that's where we're going to start in just a minute. But what happens is, and I just want to give us a little bit of review and background what takes place is, is that Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven. He has 40 days of post-resurrection appearances, and Jesus told all the guys to hang out and wait in Jerusalem. Wait for the gift my Father's going to give to you. When I give you this gift, you can't miss it, you'll know it, and then you'll go build my church. Don't go start building a church without the Spirit. The Spirit will help you to build my church and expand my kingdom. And so on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes in a great way, and it changes everything. But what's happening is, is right now, the gospel and the story is only in Jerusalem. It's right there in Jerusalem, and because the church in Jerusalem, it's not anywhere else. It's only in Jerusalem. And as the church begins to grow, there are some widows who are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And so they select some spiritual guys who can kind of help set up shop and help church do church, do church better. And so these guys are helping them. And one of these guys is a guy named Stephen. And Stephen is known as a man full of faith, 
full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. And so Stephen then begins to go around and talk to different people who didn't agree. They didn't agree that Jesus actually rose from the dead. He began to talk to people that didn't agree that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. And he began arguing in synagogues and arguing in the temple and arguing around the temple courts. And people then became persuaded that Jesus was the real deal because of, because of Stephen's persuasion. But there were other people in the crowd who said, we don't like this. And so they argued with Stephen and they couldn't fight against him. Stephen was too persuasive. So because they couldn't beat him, they decided to kill him. Acts chapter 6, we'll start with verse 7. Here's what it says. So the word of God spread. This is all in Jerusalem now. It's not spreading outside of Jerusalem. It's spreading inside the city. And the church now has grown to maybe 25,000 people. We got 3,000 are baptized on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 the next day. If you add the wives and 2.2 kids, maybe you come up with about 25,000 people. That's how big the church is. The, disciple, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests, this is interesting, Jewish priests said, okay, I think he did rise from the dead. Okay, I think he is the Messiah. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, Stephen, here's our main character today. A man full of God's grace and power performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicily and Asia, who began to argue. We're going to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit, I love that, He was very persuasive, very powerful, but now he's got this unfair advantage of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit allowed him to speak. Next verse. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses. Now here's the the catch. We're going to stir up the crowd. We're going to get people to say things about Stephen that he didn't say. We're going to get people to say things against Stephen that he didn't do. And one of those is, we're going to say that Stephen was blaspheming against Moses and against the law. That was a big no-no. Look at the next verse, verse 12. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. Verse 14. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And so in Acts chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, Stephen begins to to, to respond to their accusations. Look at Acts chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest asks Stephen. It's the same thing the same high priest asked Jesus. It's the same council that Jesus of Nazareth stood before. It's the same council in Acts chapter 4 that Peter and um, John stood before. Are these charges true? And so there's accusations that are brought, and you have the opportunity now to respond and to defend yourself. Look at the next verse. To this, Stephen replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And here's what he does. This is now the longest sermon outside of the Sermon on the Mount in the entire entire New Testament. In Acts chapter 7, it's the longest sermon you'll ever, ever read about in the New Testament outside of what Jesus did in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And what, what Stephen does is he begins to tell people about the Jewish history. 
And he's arguing persuasively that, guys, I'm one of you. I'm one of you. I love the law. I love Moses. I support the temple 100%. And he starts with a history with Abraham. And that's where it all started. In the early chapters of Genesis, God calls a man named Abraham and tells him to leave his country, leave his homeland, and go to a land that I will show you. And in Acts chapter 7, he starts with Abraham tells all about God's call to Abraham. He then talks about Isaac and how Isaac was next and how God used Isaac. He then talks about Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He then goes to Joseph and he's telling church history. He's reminding the Sanhedrin council, guys, I'm one of you. I know the history. I know the law. You can shuck and jive other people, but I know the law, the history. And he talks about Joseph and how Joseph, you know, leads his family. They all get to come. And, but there was another Pharaoh who didn't know about Joseph. And now they're enslaved for 400 years. And after the 400 years, God sends a deliverer named Moses. And Moses comes and delivers the people. Moses gives them the law. Moses gives them the Ten Commandments. And he's saying to the people, guys, I am one of you. Don't accuse me of not honoring the temple. Don't accuse me of not honoring Moses. Don't accuse me of not understanding the law. It was great. Such a great and powerful, persuasive sermon. And then he turns the corner on them. And then he says to them, and by the way, you keep talking about how great this temple is. You're honoring the building more than the builder. It's not the building that you should be honoring. And then he goes and he quotes Old Testament scripture to them. And it's all in Acts chapter 7. Read this this afternoon. He says, he says, God himself said, I am too big and too powerful to dwell in a building made by human hands. I am bigger than the building. And Stephen is reminding them of their own scriptures that God has written about the temple and how big God is. And then he goes on. He, he really gets into trouble with this. And he says, you know what? You talk about how great Moses is. Moses was great, but you didn't honor Moses. Our forefathers didn't always respect Moses. When Moses was up on the mountain and he was receiving the Ten Commandments of God, you guys made an idol in the form of a calf and began to bow down and worship the calf. You didn't honor Moses. You didn't follow the law. You took idols and put idols inside the temple. By now, he's got them all stirred up, folks. This is like an argument with your wife that's gone from good to bad to ugly. Okay, it's not going to end well. And he is not about to let them off the hook. And so he gets through all this sermon. I'm one of you. I love the law. I love Moses. I love the temple. But by the way, you've not kept the law. You've not followed Moses. You've not honored the, the commandments. And then he says this in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, this famous verse. He says this, you stiff-necked people. Isn't that a great description? You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. In other words, you're not hearing from God. You're not about God. You're about your man-made traditions. You're about your man-made laws. You guys are out to lunch. You're just like your ancestors. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. And the next few verses, they kill him. Bottom line, they kill him. 
They drag him outside the city. They take a bunch of stones and they stoned him. Had nothing to do with marijuana, big old rocks. They stoned him and he is dead. And Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr. Acts chapter 1. It's looking bad. Look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 8, rather. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And right after they kill him, there's a guy named Saul of Tarsus. And Saul was a member of the Sanhedrin. And it says, and Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day, what day? The day that Stephen was stoned. The day that Stephen was dragged out. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church. Against the church where? All the churches? There's only one, folks. There's only one church. At this time in history, you see, you and I picture churches all over the world like there are today. You and I picture hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of churches in all these different cities all over the world. There's one church, one little bitty church, and it's in one little bitty geographical area in one major city of the world. It's in Jerusalem. That day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Wow. Now, what would be going on in your mind right now? Look at verse 2. Godly men buried Stephen, and they mourned deeply for him. Can you imagine how you would feel right now? You got this whole movement thing going. You got this great church thing going. The day of Pentecost, 3,000 people are baptized. A couple days later, 5,000 people are baptized. The church is growing, growing, growing in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, you got this guy named Stephen, who's a wonderful leader. And he is dragged outside the city and killed. And on that day, a great persecution breaks out against the church. What would you be thinking? What would you be thinking if you were there and you remember that Jesus rose from the dead and you maybe even have seen him ascend into heaven, but now this whole thing's coming to, the wheels are coming off the bus. What would you have done? How would you have felt? Now, you see, this is what trips me up, and this is what trips you up. You and I get tripped up, and I, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. When I can't always understand what God's doing, I can't always understand how when all the circumstances of my life don't work out like I think they should, when I think that God should be doing this, and I've prayed for this, and this happens, and I know this is going to happen, but this takes place, this trips us up. God, where are you? And what are you doing? And what are you doing in my family? What are you doing in my my life? And when those tragedies begin to trip us up, we're not really always sure what to do next. You see, here's the point. Stephen's dead. And on that day, a great persecution broke out. And everybody in the church was rattled and fearful and scared. Because all this that we've sacrificed for, it's about to come unglued. What do we do next? Stephen's dead. The church is persecuted. The movement's about to come to an end. However, God was at work. God was at work through the whole thing. You see, the church at that time was just this little holy huddle. They were all standing together. Look at verse 3. Let's look at the next verse, verse 3. And Saul began to destroy the church. We got Stephen dead. 
We got the church being persecuted, and now this guy named Saul is destroying the church. I love that. He's destroying the only church there is. It's not like your mom and dad's church, you know, in some Timbuktu that's like a little white building, got 50 people and dying. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the only church there is. And a guy now is going from house to house, and he's dragging out mom and dad, and he's dragging out our cousins, and he's dragging out our coworkers, and he's dragging out our friends, and he puts them in prison, and he will beat them, and he will flog them, and he will have them killed for the name of Jesus Christ. Wow. Stephen's dead. The church is persecuted, and God's in the middle of all this. God is at work. God takes this, and this is the very event that gets the church now outside the city walls. The church now flees from Jerusalem. You talk about change, and they now begin to go spread the gospel all over the known world. It was this event, the stoning of Stephen, which got the gospel outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And on that day, a great persecution broke out, and the disciples and the apostles, they run for the hills, they run around, but they don't stop preaching. They just are getting started. Acts chapter 8, verse 4 says this. Watch this verse. This is a cool verse. We find it, Acts 8, 4. Those who've been scattered preach the word wherever they went. Look at the next verse. Verse 14 says this. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and then John to Samaria. Folks, in less than 300 years, the gospel goes from this little bitty city, from this little bitty church, the gospel then goes all the way to Rome. And in less than 300 years, the very people who were responsible for killing Jesus, now there are crosses all over Rome. And there are crosses not where people are being hanged on them. There are crosses in honor of the one who gave his life for everyone. In less than 300 years... There's now hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches all over the known world. And there are churches all over Rome. In less than 300 years, people are calling their sons Stephen and their sons Paul and their sons Peter. And they're calling their dogs Nero and, and Caesar. I mean, it's just hysterical, you know? I mean, you think they're, calling, they're calling their sons and daughters these guys, and now they're calling their dogs Nero and Caesar. Look at what happened. Look at what took place because the gospel. And so in this event, this event's a tragedy in our eyes. And yet Stephen gave his life willingly, and this is what became the catalyst for the gospel. So you don't know. You don't know about your stillborn child. You don't know about your job loss. You don't know about your bankruptcy. You don't know how God's going to use your rebellious son or your rebellious daughter. You don't know how God's going to use your sickness. You don't know how God's going to use some of the, the car accident. You don't know what God is involved. Stephen's dead. The church is persecuted. But God was at work. And you see, when a life has been committed to God, a, co- a commitment to where we're not rejecting the Holy Spirit, but we are receiving the Holy Spirit, You have no idea how the Father wants to use your life. And so Stephen, a man filled with the Holy Spirit, said yes to God, and God was willing to use him.
You see, your life falls somewhere between Norm Miller and the Sanhedrin. Your life is either a life of yes or it's a life of no. And I want you to see this next little slide. Accepting Jesus is accepting a life of change. This is what we really have to embrace. You see, Jesus isn't coming onto your team. You get to come onto his team. Jesus isn't worried about your deal. He's wanting you to get a, be a part of his deal. Jesus is not going to have the world revolve around you. You're going to be able to revolve around him. That's the big decision that you have to make. But accepting Jesus is always accepting a life of change. Now, I like to phrase it like this. It's, it's a yes life. Yes. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Okay, Jesus. Whatever you say, Jesus. And Jesus then begins to work in your life, sometimes in morality, sometimes in money, sometimes in attitude, sometimes in lifestyle, sometimes with forgiveness, sometimes with prayer, sometimes with Bible study. Jesus begins to work on your life. And that's the life in the Spirit. And the life in the Spirit is the life that we get to live today. The life in the Spirit is the life where we become transformed. And so it becomes a life. And so Jesus comes to you and he says, okay, I want to work on your morality for a while. I want you to stop doing this and I want you to stop, start doing this. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. And you and I know we can feel that in our spirits. We know when Jesus speaks to us and we know when we're resisting and we know when we're accepting. And so we say yes. We know when Jesus works on us about our jobs. We know when Jesus' Spirit says, I want you to work harder or I want you to work less. I want you to work more or I want you to spend more time at home. You know what the Spirit says to you. You know what the Spirit says to you about money. I want you to make more. I want you to give away more. I want you to stop hoarding. I want you to start. You know what the Spirit says to you about money. Accepting Jesus is, a, is accepting a life of change. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. You know, you've got tension between you and them, and, you know, they offended you, but you offended them, and you've never asked for their forgiveness. I want you to go to them and ask, oh, no, Jesus, anything but that. I want, no, 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 Jesus. And finally, it's a, okay, Jesus, yes. You know, you see the world is half empty every day. Greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. I want you to wake up every day positive. Yes, Jesus. Y y yes, Jesus. I want you to learn to pray. I don't really like to pray. I don't know how to pray. I want you to learn to pray. Yes, Jesus, I'll learn to pray. I want you to learn the Bible. The Bible is confusing. I don't understand. It's not written in chronological order. It's all the, I want you to learn the Bible. Yes, Jesus. You see, accepting Jesus Christ is a constant life of change. I think that's the exciting part. I think it's downright exciting when I don't have to control my entire environment. When I get to be on board with him and I get to live for him and with him. That's the exciting part. And my life has purpose. It's not about me. It's not about what I can control. It's not about what I can, can, can do. It's about me like Stephen. If I have to give my life. Yes, Jesus. And Jesus took Stephen's life and he got the gospel then outside of Jerusalem. There's a church in Safety Harbor today because God allowed Stephen to be killed and a great persecution broke out that day and everybody spread. 
The gospel came to you and to me because of this story. Because Stephen was faithful and obedient to God. And this is our life. Yes. Yes, Jesus. Yes. Yes. Whatever you want, Jesus. Yes. I'm your man. I'm your woman. I'm your boy. I'm your girl. I'm your leader. Yes. And so we get to live a life then. It is constantly a life motivated and moved by the Spirit of God. And He loves you so much. He loves you so much. But He loves the unchurched people even more because you're already in. He, he loves the people that He's trying to reach even more than He's concerned about everything in your life working out. And so He'll use you and He will use me to impact all these people that we come around. Well, this is really cool what, what we see the only time in Scripture we ever see this. I'm getting ready to show you a couple of verses that we see nowhere else in Scripture. Let's look at the first one up here. It's Acts chapter 7, verse 55. It says, but Stephen, this is when he's about to be stoned, about to be killed. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, and he saw the glory of God. And Jesus, circle that word, standing. It is the only place in Scripture where you will ever find Jesus standing. Every other time in Scripture, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is sitting down at the right hand of God. Today, he's, he's seated by the right hand of God. When Stephen's being martyred, Jesus is standing up. Look at the next verse, the very next verse. Look, he said, Stephen said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus gets up off of his throne and he honors someone who has honored him with their life. And that's your opportunity. That's my opportunity to honor Jesus Christ with our life. I'm gonna ask you to stand. I'm gonna ask our prayer partners to come down front. And the first decision to make today is whether or not you want to be with the Norm Millers or you want to be with the Sanhedrin. Everybody has this opportunity. And I don't know how many times God came to Norm Miller. I don't think this was the first time this story. I bet God came to Norm Miller when he was in elementary school. I bet God came to Norm Miller when he was in, in middle school. I bet God came to him in high school. I bet when he was a young businessman, God came to him time and time again. I don't know how many times Norm Miller said no. I know there were three times the Sanhedrin said no. And I don't want you to say no. I want you to have the opportunity and the chance to say yes. To say yes. And you pick the right team. You pick his team. You pick the team that's the winning team. And then you just continue to say yes. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Let me pray for us. We thank you, oh God, for giving us your son. And we thank you for the role of the Holy Spirit that allows us to join you and to get on your team. Father, if there are those in this room that have never given their lives to you, I pray that right now they will come down front and talk to a prayer partner and they will give their lives to you. I pray if there are those in this room right now that are just resisting and struggling with your spirit, even though they're believers, I pray they'll lay it down and that they'll begin a life of saying yes 
and yes, and yes, and yes. In your wonderful name we do pray, amen. God bless you.